What would you do for a million dollars? Some of you may have said something like, I wouldn't do that for a million dollars. Well, in Bernice Canner's book, Are You Normal About Money? That's the title of the book. Americans reveal just how far they'd go to make a buck. For one million dollars, 65% of Americans would live on a deserted island for a year. If they could use, if they could earn a million dollars. Now I learned this morning that John Jorgensen would play the first half of the Steelers game tonight if they would give him a million dollars. So, I don't know. What's that? Yeah, the first half minute. <laughs> That's about the end. He'd be flattened by then, I'm sure. Thirty <laughs> percent of Americans would spend six months in jail for a crime they didn't commit if they could earn a million dollars. For three thousand dollars, twenty-four percent of Americans would reveal a friend's deep dark secret that they had promised to keep they could get $3,000. For $500, 66% of Americans would kiss a stranger for $500. And for $50, any takers yet, 75% of Americans would kiss a frog for $50. All right, so maybe you wouldn't kiss a frog for $50. Maybe you would. Brian would. <laughs> sure, why not? <laughs> what would you do for money? Money seems to drive an awful lot of our choices in life. Can money bring fulfillment? No, it's church, so I'm, I'm sure you're all going to say no, it Cannot. And yet, how much money creeps into our lives and into our decision-making and into our thought processes if we really come to believe that there's more joy and more money? The preacher in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 explored the question of money and the fulfillment that people think they can get from more money. And he concluded that living for money means losing your life. If I can get this thing to work, it would help if I turned it on, wouldn't it? There we go. Living for money means losing your life was his conclusion. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, we're picking up with verse 8. Haddon Robinson wrote, You will invest your life in something or you will throw it away on nothing. The truth is that we invest our lives, or if we invest our lives in the pursuit of money, we are in fact throwing it away on nothing. Because there is no lasting value in living for money. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 8 through 17 give us four reasons why we shouldn't live for money. And the first one is, the bigger the government, the more we pay. Amen, everybody says. Verse 8. If you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, in the district, do not be shocked at the sight. For one official watches over another official, and there are higher officials over them, 
After all, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. The first reason why we shouldn't put our faith in our bank accounts is because the government can take it away. King Solomon, writing near the very end of his life, observed that governments in general tend to misuse their power and abuse their citizens, the ones they're supposed to protect. That is the tendency of government in general. So we should not be surprised that government officials, despite what they say about helping the average person, tend by virtue of the power of government, tend to consolidate their power for their own gain in ways that oppress people unfairly. And they do it primarily through taxation. Our own nation of America, of course, was born in revolt against excessive taxation from England. And that's the trend line for all governments, including Solomon's, he observes at the end of his life. His own government in Israel. Taxation increases as government grows. Now, verse 9 is the key to understanding it, because he starts out with the abuse and the misuse. But verse 9 is the key to understanding this little segment. And unfortunately, verse 9 can be translated in two opposite ways from the Hebrew text. The Hebrew text can be translated in a positive way, which is the way the New American Standard, which I just read to you, translates the verse. As if the the king, at the top of this pyramid of power that he has just described, as if the king cultivates the land in a good way for the country. But the previous verse was all negative, and it makes more sense to take verse 9 in a negative way as well, as a negative description of the power of the king. And so the NIV, I think, gives a much better translation of the passage. The king is essentially the top dog in this pyramid of power in the government. You know, government officials, one on top of the other, on top of the other, until finally you get to the king on the top of that pyramid of power. And he takes his cut from the taxes, just like all the others under him. Governments create bureaucracies, where each level of government takes its cut from taxes imposed on the average worker in the country, because that's where they have to go to get the money. And the king is then the final profiteer, if you will, in the pyramid of power. The paraphrase in the New Living Bible, I think, helps us grasp the point. The paraphrase goes like this. Don't be surprised if you see a poor person being oppressed by the powerful and if justice is being miscarried throughout the land. For every official is under orders from higher up and matters of justice get lost in red tape and bureaucracy. Even the king milks the land for his own profit. I think that's the sense of verses 8 and 9 here and particularly verse 9. Some have said that Solomon couldn't have said this because he'd been criticizing his own government, his own power. But there are two reasons why I don't think that's a valid criticism of what we're talking about here. First, Solomon, of course, is talking about government in general rather than specifically his own government. And second, 
Ecclesiastes was written near the very end of Solomon's reign as king. And even he could see at the end of his reign the huge cost of government upon the people of Israel through taxation. The excessive taxation he had set, Solomon had set in motion, would eventually, very shortly after he dies, would completely undo the kingdom of Israel because of taxation. So even he could see that. Let me review the history for a minute. King David had ruled over the nation during a time of very limited government, really. Um, Basically, except for the standing army and protection of the citizens, the 12 tribes were free to do what they wanted to do to govern themselves during King David's reign. There was a very small centralized power in Jerusalem. In fact, David had started the city, or had taken over the city of Jerusalem as his, as his capital, but it was, it was pretty limited, pretty minor. After David died, Solomon took over. And Solomon initiated a huge expansion of the centralized powers of Jerusalem over all of the 12 tribes. He initiated major building projects. It was Solomon, of course, who built the temple to God in Jerusalem. A huge and massive building project that had to be paid for. But when you go back and read the history, he also built himself huge government complexes, a huge palace which was much more involved in building and cost much more to build than the temple itself. And he expanded all of that centralized government. He divided the land into 12 taxation districts. And you'll notice verse 8 talks about if you you see this oppression out there in the district where you live. Solomon was the one who established the 12 taxation districts in order to get the money to do his building projects. And Solomon instituted a forced labor system in which citizens, the common people, had to work for the government in Jerusalem under a forced labor system in building these projects. And that was bitterly resented by the people of Israel. In fact, there was a mini-revolt near the end of Solomon's reign, led by a man by the name of Jeroboam, who ended up being defeated and was sent in exile to Egypt. He ran away. And when Solomon died, Rehoboam, his son, took over. And Rehoboam increased the taxation, increased all of the effects on the common people, the cost to them. And then what happened? The nation revolted and Jeroboam came back and he led the ten tribes in revolt. And they split away from Rehoboam and the two tribes, and the kingdom from that point on in Old Testament history is split, all because of the excessive taxation under King Solomon. So the principle is a true one, and even Solomon could begin to see that at the end of his life. The bigger the government, the more the citizens pay. We see the same principle in our own government, too. Obviously, one of the problems with big government is big waste. 
I don't need to tell you that, but I'll give you one illustration. It doesn't take long to get these kinds of... You just do a Google search and you got tons of them, all right? This comes from BillShrink.com. In 2003, taxpayers paid in America for nearly $25 billion in government spending and nobody knows where it went. $25 billion in 2003. Nobody knows where it went. The incredible sum of money was buried deep within the Treasury Department's financial report in a section called Unreconciled Transactions Affecting the Change in Net Position. Bedtime reading. In other words, the checkbook didn't balance by $25 billion in 2003. Now, what do you do when your checkbook doesn't balance? You know? You know, write a correction maybe if you can't find the reason. $25 billion correction in 2003. Nobody knows where the money went. And in 2003, $25 billion would have paid the entire Justice Department budget for an entire calendar year. We could have done a lot better dealing with injustice in this land with that $25 billion. It's gone. Who paid for it? You did. I did. We all did, because it came from our taxes. So the the bigger the government, the more we pay, Solomon says. So what's what's the application then? What's Solomon's point here? Don't put your faith in your money, in your bank accounts, because the government could reach into your wallet and take it. And that's what governments often do. All right, that's the first reason not to put your faith in money. Second reason, the more we have, the more we spend, Solomon teaches us. Verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity, it's emptiness. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. One of the major myths about money that we subscribe to in our culture is that we are what we own. Our personal value comes from our net worth. You know, the person with the most toys at the end wins, right? Our value comes from that. So we're tempted to focus our lives around the accumulation of stuff and the increase of our incomes. And Solomon observes in these verses that when we do that, we will never be satisfied. For contentment doesn't come through that increase in our incomes. The Hebrew word translated satisfied means to feel contentment. It implies a sense of confidence in the present and confidence in the future. That sense of contentment that we're okay. The one who loves money, Solomon says, will never be satisfied. No matter how big the bank account grows. The one who loves abundance will never be contented no matter how large his salary becomes. Contentment does not come from money. Now, we see that truism played out over and over again in our world. Born into a small house crammed with lots of people, 
Professional basketball player Scottie Pippen didn't have much as a boy growing up. But his journey into the NBA changed all that. From 1999 through 2002, his contract paid him at least $14.7 million a year, not to mention income from endorsements. He already owned a 74-foot yacht at that point and a $100,000 Mercedes along with many other cars. But a Sports Illustrated feature said before every game in Portland's Rose Garden, Pippen lets his gaze drift over to the courtside seat occupied by Paul Allen, co-founder of Microsoft and owner of both the Trailblazers and the Seattle Seahawks, a man at that point with a personal net worth of $40 billion. What does he have, Pippen asks himself every game. $40 billion. How can I make just $1 billion? I just want one of them. That's all. What do I need to do to get it? The man is unsatisfied because he can look at someone else who has more. Money never satisfies. We think it will until we get there and then there's always more. Enough is never enough in the world of money. Why? Well, the preacher goes on in verse 11 to give us the reason. The reality is that the more our wealth increases, the more our appetites increase as well, and the more we consume. It's a bit like the law of space. Now, you all know the law of space in your house, right? Stuff accumulates to fill the available space, right? You know, the junk drawer or whatever. Now, you all have junk drawers, I know. So that's the law of space. But it's the same with our money. The more money we have to spend, the more we will find to spend it on. It's just simply the way it works. Solomon, now remember, Solomon's a wealthy man himself, right? He's very wealthy. He says, as goods increase, verse 11, so do those who consume them. The more you have, the more you spend. What's the benefit or value, he says, to the owner except to feast his eyes on what he owes? So a wealthy man might own a garage filled with ten cars. He can only drive one at a time. What's his value? To look at him. (laughs) That's what Solomon says. The rest he likes to look at. That's what Solomon would do. Call it the rule of stuff. Consumption grows to meet availability. That's life. The more we have, the more we spend. The more we spend, the less we feel contented. Now take a look at verse 12. The common worker, he says, sleeps well, whether he has a full stomach or not, but the wealthy man sleeps poorly on a full stomach. Why? It's a proverb, and he's talking about the stuff that the wealthy man has. All his possessions will not let him sleep well. So here's the corollary to the principle of stuff, the rule of stuff. The more we have, the more we have to worry about. The wealthy man had more that he had to deal with, the more that he had to manage, more that he had to think about. So therefore, he never slept as well because he was always worried about the stuff that he had to take care of. 
Now that's simply, if you think about your own life and how subtle this process works in our lives, whether you have much or whether you have little, you will know that that's true. When Janie and I were first married almost 36 years ago now, I was a full-time Bible college student, and she worked at W.T. Grants as a clerk, and most of you probably don't even know what W.T. Grants is anymore. <laughs> we, uh, we lived in a little apartment. We had very little, but we were very contented. We would buy a roast for Sunday dinner and make it last all week long. There's a lot you can do with roast beef. A big splurge was going to Dairy Queen for an ice cream sundae. As the years passed, we lived in a couple of different mobile homes, and slowly, you know, you start to accumulate, right? Now we own a very comfortable home. Well, the bank owns it, and we pay them for it, but, you know, who's quibbling here at this point? Very comfortable home, nice piece of property, own a car, a truck, two-car garage, a camper. We can go out to dinner. We can do the things that we want to do. Now, back then, 36 years ago, if we had and were making what we have now, we would have thought, wow, look at all we could save, right? <laughs> Because we're living on much less. But it doesn't work that way, does it? Our consumption has grown to meet availability. That's the way life works. Furthermore, the more stuff we have now, the more stuff we have to manage. <laughs> Back then, there wasn't stuff to manage. <laughs> There just wasn't anything to manage. Going to bed at night, you didn't have to think about it. That's the law of stuff, played out in a very homely illustration for you. But we accumulate, we gather, we grow, and our consumption grows too. It's played, that law of stuff is played out in our lives. If you own one home then you have to think about only one home. If you own two homes, you have to manage two homes. Each piece, each part that we add means more we have to manage and take care of. Now, it's not wrong. It's not sinful. But what he's saying is it won't bring contentment just to have more stuff. In fact, it often brings discontentment because we're never satisfied. Epictetus, one of the early church fathers, wrote, contentment comes not so much from great wealth as from few wants. There's the key. More stuff doesn't breed greater contentment. It, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying... We're discontented, Janie and I. I don't want you to get the wrong impression. We're very contented with what God gives us. But more doesn't bring that. What's the key? 
Contentment comes when our wants are less than our income. Very simple. The key to contentment is to control our wants. Because the more we have, the more we spend. Principle number three, reason number three, the folly of loving money. The more we hoard, the more we lose. Verse 13. There is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. When those riches were lost through a bad investment and he had fathered a son, there was, then there was nothing to support him. So the more we hoard, the more we lose. Another money myth we need to remember is that it's our money. It's my money. We think that we earned it. We own it. We can do what we want with it. We can bring security for ourselves through it. Soon we come to put our hope in the bank account, our faith in our insurance policies and our houses and our 401ks and our IRAs and our whatever. And if these things are our hope in life, then we're sadly mistaken. A man in Pittsburgh walked into a supermarket, handed the checkout clerk some counterfeit money, and asked for change. Now you have to give this guy credit for thinking big. He handed the clerk a counterfeit $1 million bill. Right. Like the clerk's going to have change for a $1 million bill in the cash register, you know. You bought a candy bar, you get $999,998 back. Thank you, I'm rich. Not only that, of course, as most of you probably know, the U.S. government does not print $1 million bills anyway. There's no such thing. It didn't work out as he planned, obviously. The clerk gave him nothing. The manager took what he had. And the police came and took him away to jail. (laughs) He had great hopes for all of this money, only to see it all disappear before his eyes. Because it wasn't real. Now, I know, we don't pass counterfeit bills. But we do put way too much faith in our holdings and in our pension plans, in our 401ks, in all of these kinds of things, in Social Security. We think that these things will give us security. So we save and we invest in the hope of building security. And the truth is, the real honest-to-God truth is, that for most of us in this room, we are only one or two Serious misfortunes away from nothing. From homelessness, if you will. Solomon warns us in this verse that all that wealth we have hoarded can disappear as fast as that counterfeit million dollar bill. And he says, I have seen a grievous evil, a very bad misfortune come to someone. 
This person rose to the top, if you will, of the corporate ladder, was very successful, and hoarded it all, made sure that he kept it secure, and he was very careful to guard everything that he had, only to have a misfortune come to him and lose it all, and couldn't even have, didn't even have anything to give to his children. And this is a grievous evil, Solomon says. It can happen in the blink of an eye to any of us. Job, in the Old Testament, was a wealthy, wealthy man. And overnight he lost everything because God allowed it to happen. The Bible warns us to remember that everything we have is a gift from God. It's not ours at all. And we must put our faith in him. My money is not my money. Your money is not yours. It is a gift from God. It's God's money on loan to us. And in Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses had warned the people about this temptation to prosperity when they got in the land of Israel. He said, when you get in the land and you are, you are doing well and you are successful, in fact, it was a warning against all of the things that they would later see in Solomon's reign back in Deuteronomy chapter 8. And he says, you may say to yourself there, when you are finally successful in the land of Israel, because they'd been in the wilderness, remember, He said, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your forefathers as it is today. Remember this. You may say when you are successful and you have finally done well, It's mine. It's the work of my hands. I have built this. I have done this myself. And God says, "Uh uh-uh, you haven't. You only did it because I gave you that ability and that opportunity. It's my gift to you. Now, saving is not wrong. Hoarding is wrong. The Bible says hoarding is wrong. Hoarding is, of course, an attitude even more than it is an amount of money. It's the attitude that that we are accumulating our stuff in a carefully guarded way so as to preserve our future for ourselves. That's hoarding. Because there is a difference between saving and hoarding. There is a difference between being prudent and wise in the gifts that God gives us. That we are supposed to do. And having this attitude that it's mine and I can secure my life for myself through this. If we think that what we have saved will protect us in the future, we're sadly mistaken, God says. God is the one we should trust. God gives us the ability. God gives us the opportunity. God blesses us, and he does bless us in this country, does he not? He gives us much. We have to be prudent. We have to be careful. We must be good stewards of what God gives to us. But it is not mine, and it is not yours. 
God gives it to us to invest in his kingdom. To care for our families, certainly, and to share with others. All that we have comes from the hand of God, and so we should use it wisely. It's so subtle, though, isn't it? How all of this stuff creeps into, I worked hard, I did this, I accomplished that, I built this. God says, no. I gave you, God says, that ability. Trust me. Are you trusting God for your future or the works of your own hands? Fourth reason why it is foolishness to love money. The harder we work, the more we leave behind. Verse 15. As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so will he return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. And this also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus he will die. So what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? Throughout his life he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. Now death is the great equalizer. And this is one of the continuing themes of Ecclesiastes. And it's so applicable to our lives in 21st century America. We enter this world naked, we will leave the same. We brought nothing into this world, we can take nothing out of it. And everyone knows that's true. Yet we don't live like it's really true. We work hard. But what do we have to show for it in the end? Nothing. All our hard work, he says, is chasing the wind. We subscribe to the myth, if it's going to be, it's up to me, as this writer puts it. Solomon says here in verse 17, he says, A person spends his days eating in darkness with great frustration and vexation and affliction and anger even. The ancient Israelite, the hard-working ancient Israelite would get up and eat breakfast in the dark. He'd work all day. He'd come home and he'd eat supper in the dark because he was trying to do everything he could do to provide a good life for himself and his family. And that's what he's talking about here. When we feel like it is all up to us, then we work, and we work hard too. And... Our working days are filled with frustrations and things don't always go right and the struggle and even anger when things go wrong. And then, then we die and we leave it all behind, all that stuff that we'd worked so hard for. And Solomon says this is a grievous evil. The word means a depressing misfortune. Aren't you depressed this morning? Aren't you glad you came to church today? But there is another way to live, which is Solomon's whole point. He explored this whole issue of money, and he realizes there's another way to live. It is God's way to live. And his way does bring fulfillment and satisfaction, even in death. When we invest in God's kingdom, we invest in something that lasts. Look at what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 19-21. 
Jesus said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If my treasure is in my house on this earth, that's where my heart is. And one day it will all disintegrate like that high king of Ireland's castle alongside the river. That's just the way it is. So don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, Jesus says, where all of the disintegration takes place and it never lasts. Store up treasures in heaven for that lasts forever. At 84 years of age, Tom White has almost achieved his life's goal. 84. His life's goal is to to give away his entire fortune. When people ask Tom White why, he responds with, give me three reasons why I shouldn't. And then proceeds to give three reasons he should. I can't take it with me, my kids are okay, and my wife's taken care of, and I'm motivated by what Jesus wants me to do as a Christian. And I think he wants me to help make the world a better place. I can't take it with me, my family's taken care of, and I'm living the way Jesus wants me to live to make this world a better place. Invest in his work. Tom White has been on the boards of Harvard, Boston College, the JFK Library, and the New England Patriots, God rest their souls. (laughs) It's a sad week in Patriots land. But his, Tom White's company, by the way, built Foxborough Stadium. It's one of the places where his millions came from. His proudest relationship is with the poorest country, he said, in the Western Hemisphere, Haiti. He's involved in health and justice projects there. When his alma mater, Harvard University, calls for a donation, he says, for God's sake, you've got $15 billion over there at Harvard, and I've got people over here starving to death. You tell me what I should do and where I should give my money. That's what he says to Harvard. Then with a chuckle, he adds, I still give $1,000 a year to Harvard so my classmates will talk to me. (laughs) His one regret in life, I'm sorry I don't have more money to give away. You say, well, Dave, how does this relate to me? I don't have millions to give away. You know, it would be okay to live on couple hundred thousand and give it all the rest away, right? Because <laughs> that goes back to that law of consumption, you remember. Well, I know, most of us are barely making ends meet, if you will. We're doing all right. God has provided, but uh, we don't have millions to give away. But that's not really the question, is it? The real question is how much Not how much we have, but are we making our decisions based upon heaven or earth? That's the real question. 
Am I living for the stuff here? Or am I living for the stuff there? That's the real question. Not how much we have or how little we have, but what's guiding our choices in life? What are you living for? If you're living for the money and the stuff here, it will be unsatisfying in the end. Fulfillment comes when we live for heaven, not earth. And when we invest in heaven. I mean, if we make our career decisions based solely on our salary, if we make our job choices based on how it will affect our bottom line in life, if we're trusting in our investments and in our homes and in in our savings, our bank accounts, then we'll never be satisfied. But if we're making all of our choices based on how it will affect the kingdom, we are living with a heavenly purpose. Years ago, Pastor Ken Mitchell worked part-time on the loading docks of various trucking companies. At one company, he met a fellow part-timer, a fine Christian man named Rufus Kidd. He had just completed his associate's degree in transportation. He was seeking a full-time career. I mean, after all, loading dock work wasn't his primary focus in life. Since the company was beginning to open up to the minorities at the time, Rufus, an African-American, went in to interview for a position with the company. Later, Ken asked him how the interview went, and he said they offered him a job in sales, something that would pay well and offered him unlimited opportunities to climb the ladder in the company. Well, Ken was excited for him, but Rufus said he wasn't going to take the job. Although it was everything he wanted, it was what he wanted to do with his career, he wasn't going to take it. Because in order to take that job, he would have to give up his ministry to singles at his church. He said he would wait for a job to come along that would allow him to continue to teach his class at church rather than pursue his career. Now think about the job choice. Think about the decision-making process there and the difference. Those kinds of priorities are the priorities that Jesus is talking about. Rufus sacrificed his chance to leave the sweltering loading docks, he gave up a brand new career to continue his routine service for the kingdom. Which is the higher priority? And then apply it to your life as I apply it to mine. How easy it is, right, to get caught up in the pursuit of one instead of the other. How do we make our choices in life? What drives our lives? What moves us to work hard? What guides our decisions? Heaven or earth? Kingdom or money? Which is it? Father, teach us that we find fulfillment in you. And as we invest in you, we find our satisfaction. 
And we thank you, Lord, for all of the blessings you give us. I praise you for the blessings you have given me and my family and ask you to teach us, all of us, what are the higher priorities in life and where we will truly find our greatest contentment in serving you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.